And the fact is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Kaya, Wanju, hello, welcome to another episode of The Curb. I'm Andrew F. Pierce, and this is the podcast where I bring you in-depth interviews with filmmakers, creatives, and curators of culture. This podcast is recorded in Bulu, Western Australia, sovereignty never ceded. Daniel Monks is an award-winning theatre and film actor who hails from Perth, Western Australia, right here. He received an actor nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role for the feature film Pulse, a story about a disabled teen who undergoes radical surgery to turn into a beautiful woman in a bid to be loved and embraced. Daniel wrote the script and worked with his close friend Stevie Cruz Martin as a director on the film. It's a film that helped launch his career as an actor in both Australia and London, where he performed alongside Amelia Clarke in The Seagull, and also where he won Best Performer in a Play Award at the Stage Debut Awards for his turn in Teenage Dick, Michael Liu's darkly comedic retelling of Richard III. When I first watched Pulsed, I saw an actor who brought a complicated and conflicted character to life on screen with deep empathy and understanding. We opened the discussion the following interview, rather, by talking about the origins of Pulse, leading Daniel to reflect on the almost 10-year journey between the film being shot and now. In that decade-long career path, Daniel's also starred in Australian films like Sissy and Timothy Despina Marshall's new film, In the Room Where He Waits. His place in the world of theatre and film as a gay disabled actor has seen him become a leader in his field, forging a path for his fellow queer and disabled actors. We talk about the weight of responsibility that often comes with the role of being a leader, while also touching on the push for diversity on stage and on screen, and as well as how Daniel navigates that when it's often driven by non-disabled, cisgender, straight, white people. As you will hear in the following interview, Daniel is a bucket list interview guest I've been eager to talk with for years. I was fortunate enough to catch up with Daniel's mum a few years ago, Annie Murtuck Monks, about her work as a casting director. And so it was quite wonderful to hear about the conversations that she has with Daniel about their work. Daniel also talks about the support that filmmakers like Stevie Cruz Martin and Hannah Barlow have given him throughout his career. I recorded this ahead of the world premiere of In the Room Where He Waits, which screened at the Queer Screen Mardi Gras Film Festival recently. This stunning drama sees Daniel play the role of Tobin, an actor who slips back home to Australia for his father's funeral. As he waits out his two-week quarantine period in a hotel, he is haunted by the presence of the previous tenant in the room. This riveting film sees Daniel command the screen in a way that will have you leaning on the edge of your seat, watching everything that he's doing. Not because of how tense the film is, but simply because of how compelling Daniel is to watch. The film will no doubt screen down the line at other festivals, so please keep an eye out for it and seek it out. This is a long, deep dive discussion, which I'm very proud to be able to share with you all. Make sure, please, to seek out Pulse, Sissy, and In the Room Where He Waits, where it screens. And also visit National Theatre at home to view The Seagull. I'm not sure if this is available in Australia or just in the UK, but I'll stick a link in the show notes anyway, just in case. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Curb Podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to do a little bit and help keep the Curb independent, please visit patreon.com forward slash the Curb AU to show your support as little from as little as $1 a month. For now, here is the great Daniel Monks on his career as an actor.
let's start talking about Pulse then, because okay. I know it's been a while since that first came out. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if you can start talking about maybe your reflections on that yeah, yeah, yeah. and how it also came about. Um, how do you yeah. feel about it now, almost 10 years on? Yeah, I mean, we literally recorded it, recorded it. We filmed it 10 years ago. And so it is, a, it's like a decade ago. It's kind of amazing. And also I started writing it in 2009. So like it was such a long project. The best thing about it for me was the actual filming of it. The best thing about it was like the people, especially my relationship with Stevie Chris Martin, the director, who is my film wife and great love and platonic love. Um, yes. <laughs> and she, um, <laughs> and, but it was also like, especially us two together, like it was from first starting writing it until like the final end festival thing. It was like a 10 year process. And there was no money and it was really hard. And anyone who's done like micro, micro budget independent filmmaking, like it was, it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm so proud of what we achieved and I'm so glad with what we made. And I never want to go through that experience again because it was so hard. Like, like I feel like I've served my time and now like things are hopefully, I mean, things have been for both of us easier since then. Yeah. Because that was like the kind of key to open the door into the industry type thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stevie's career is just gone us. It's just like yours. Like yeah, you've both kind of gone in really interesting ways. And of course yeah. you're working again, but yeah. um, I've been so excited to see where you've both gone creatively. Um, it's really fascinating and exciting. Um, yeah. But I'm curious if you can talk about that creative drive or the push behind Pulse. And yeah. for starters, I guess, where your intentions were as a scriptwriter for that yeah. particular story. So... It's, it's funny because I don't really write anymore, which is kind of surprised me. But like with Pulse, it felt like I remember at the time it was like this like visceral like urge that I had to tell the story. I used to like in a very young melodramatic way say like, if I die tomorrow, this is the one story that I need to have told. And that was like such a great driver to and, you know, to, you know, surmount all the obstacles in making it. But it really was, I think. And there's a lot of reasons, but I think like also just being a young disabled person and a young queer disabled person. And like when I was a teenager, I fell in love with like art house cinema and kind of discovered what it was to be queer through these amazing queer filmmakers from around the world. And kind of could envision what my life could be as a gay and queer person and what my future could be. But with disability, I never saw a reflection that even came remote to speaking to my then current experience or what my future could be. Also, because mostly, you know, films about the disabled experience were never made with any disabled people. So it was kind of like an, ab an able person's idea and like lens of what they imagined it would be if they became disabled, but without actually anyone with lived experience. And so that was like super isolating as a disabled teenager and I felt like very alone in my experience and like and that was really hard like it, it, I kind of did in a way in like not a logical way but in like an emotional way felt like I was the only person going through this in the world and so it was that the film was very much kind of like that was the biggest um need for me in writing that story is like wanting to tell my experience in the hope that like other people who who experience similar things can feel less alone and like and feel seen and stuff which like 
the film went, you know, well and everything like that. But like the the most important, meaningful things to me is like, especially like other disabled people and their um, responses to the film. That was like kind of the the you know purpose that was steaming the engine. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I still think it's it's one of the most beautiful films that I've seen out of Australia, especially for queer cinema. Yeah. Like not just in, you know, not just visually, but the story and your presentation and the narrative in it, it's just, it's written with heart. And, you know, that sounds like, so I I don't mean it to sound like so fluffy and all that kind of stuff, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was such a, like, especially for that period of time, like it's not that long ago. Yeah. But if realistically Australia has still got a long way to go with both disabled and queer stories. <laughs> I mean, totally. I'd like, and like, I always feel like with Australia, like we're heading in the right direction, but we're just, but we're still lagging behind when it comes to, I mean, that's also why as well, like I, I now work between Australia and the UK because Australia is specifically with disability, like, you know, more progressed when it comes to opportunities. And so, like, I kind of just go where I can get the best work and kind of flip between and stuff. And and it does, yeah, it does feel like Australia is definitely taking the right steps to get in the right direction, but it just, like, they're a few years behind. Um, but they'll get there. Yeah, look, I mean, my main job, I work in government stuff, yeah. so I know, like, everything yes. is slow. Yes, <laughs> totally, totally. We have a great idea. We'll get to it in 10 years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah it happens yeah um but yeah i've always found that so you know such a powerful film and i think about it quite a lot and especially in regards to your actor nomination as well for it too and i'm curious if you can talk about what that meant to you as a performer growing up that was just incredible that was also like such a like first of all to like up you know submit for the actors is like so expensive and like we was we were so broke and like so we had to like rustle up the money and we only did it because they had like, I think the previous year they started the best independent film category. So we we're like, well, there's no chance we'll have for any other nomination, but at least we can try to get an independent film nomination potentially. And then the nominations came out and like, I looked at the independent and I was like, oh, I didn't get a nomination. I was like, oh, damn it. That sucks. And then I got a message from someone saying, congratulations. I'm like, what? But I didn't get a nomination. And then it was like the, yeah, the, 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 the it was, it was so cool. It was, it really was like the wildest of dreams. And also because when I started writing Pulse, I was at Afters and I never thought that I would be an actor or could be an actor. I always wanted to be an actor as a kid. When I became disabled at age 11, I gave up that dream because I thought it wouldn't be possible because I didn't see that it would be possible. So I kind of went into filmmaking. And so when I started writing this, I never intended that I would act in it myself. Um, and then it was only like, you know, three years into writing it and making short films and stuff like that, that I decided, well, with Stevie, it was kind of like, if Stevie's directing and there's no better person, this, this, this character is so personal to me and so related to my specific experience that there's no, no better actor to do it. And even if this is the only thing I ever get to act in, at least I'll have this one thing that I've had that experience of. And in terms of creatively, that my favourite part of the entire 10-year experience was acting on set each day, like hands down. And it kind of, that being on set made me realize, oh, I want to pursue acting specifically. And I, I, I want to kind of revive that dream that I kind of buried. And 
and do that. And so like while editing it, like before it even came out, I was like, you know, starting doing like dance and movement theater and like slowly doing like, you know, unpaid independent theater in Sydney and, you know, like trying to like be an actor as well. And so then to have the acknowledgement, not only the film, but of like my performance was just like, it, it made it feel more than ever that, oh, I actually can have a career as an actor and this doesn't need to be just like a one-time thing that I give myself. I could actually do this for real. And so, yeah, it meant a lot. I'm curious, when did you first meet Stevie as well? Where where did that friendship start? Yeah, so we met in 2008 and I was doing the Hack Screen workshops um, in Perth and I have um, a, a dear friend of ours, Amanda McGregor, she's an actress and I was doing it as a filmmaker and we, we became really good friends and then she was in a short film that she invited me to the screening of, Stevie was the director of that i went to that thought she was the coolest human in the world and we met and then she started doing screen much as well so for then for the rest of the year she she did that and for all like she was doing as a filmmaker as well so she would do her own stuff but then also for my stuff she would um she very kindly generously worked as my like cinematographer and that's kind of when we first started you know just in these you know like screen exercises little like short films that we were making for this the class was that's kind of when we started bonding and and also like throughout friendship and stuff which is i'm really bad at maths but <laughs> that's like what, <laughs> so much okay <laughs> like, like 15 16 years ago but like you know in in the lead up to pulse we lived together in sydney for yeah. three and a half years we've like we've like you know traveled everywhere together we've worked together like like we've had we've had such a um a long, rich friendship. And then afters as well. How did you decide that that was where you wanted to audition? And yeah, yeah. I guess as well, what did you audition with too? Yeah. So I, I, when I was 15, I had well and truly buried my dream of being an actor. And my mum, who's Annie Murder Monks, who um, she is a cast director of West Australia and also um, runs the Pax Room workshops where I <laughs> met my friends. My mum set up my friends. So like, um, but she, um, she had a student from PAC who went to Peter Templeman, who went to Afters as a filmmaker. And I was very much um, like, I want to be a filmmaker now. So I remember at one point we went up to Sydney because we have family there and Pete organized for me to have like, like to you know see the campus or whatever. And this was back when I was there at North Road. And that kind of like cemented the dream from age 15 of like, I, I want to go to Afters. And so it wasn't until I was 19, almost 20 that I got in because it was, it was for filmmaking. So I started, I, I, it was, did I have, oh, I had all the, my application was actually quite full because I had the year of tax screen workshops, little short film exercises to submit with. So like I had like, yeah, a, a lot of stuff to come with, which was good. Yeah. If, if you had gone as like, if you'd decided to go to like NIDA or something like that, is there like a, a monologue or a stage play or something or a performance that you would have chosen? Totally. I mean, I feel like if I, I didn't do the drama school route mainly because at that time, and it's changed now, but at the time I was told that they don't take um, physically disabled people because it's such a physically demanding course. And since then, Bridie McKim, who's a friend of mine, is their first um, actor with a physical mobility disability, graduate from NIDA and she's amazing. But um I feel like if I have a monologue to go to, it's definitely Richard the Third. Richard the Third is like my 
Um, I played a version of him in an American play called Teenage Dick in Dogma Warehouse in the West End. And that was like Richard III as a teenager in American high school. But also like I have, I feel like he will like be my Hamlet where like I have long-term aspirations to, to, to play him in the proper Shakespeare um, in the future and stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to talk about your London work in a moment, mm-hmm. but I also want to talk about your mum. I've yes. interviewed her before. She's oh, wonderful. Yeah. She's a delight. I love talking with her. What's it like having Annie as your mum? Amazing. She's, um, yeah, I, I, I guess what I really most appreciate about, until when it comes to my work and stuff is like, because she has such a passion for acting and cinema, it's this really nice thing where like, I mean, I'm very much a mama's boy, but like, like even more so because, because it's like we, not only do we have like a, you know, bond, but then also we have the same shared interests and passions. So like we can talk about this together and like we have so much in common in that as well. And so to have like her support and her, and also as well, just like it's hard to decide to pursue a career as an actor. It's even harder when you're disabled and there are the opportunities for you. And I can imagine with, um, you know, people who don't have an understanding of the industry or don't care about the art that, you know, other parents might not be as supportive. Whereas my mom is like so supportive and my biggest champion and like, and so, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah. I'm curious in as well, how you both navigate the difficult conversations about acting, not even, you know, about disability or, or being queer or anything like that, but being an actor in, in itself is hard. So I'm curious how she's prepared you for that life as an actor. That's a good question. I mean, I feel like, you know, I feel like when I was starting out, I feel like she was scared as any rational person would be. Um, I feel like what's been kind of nice, I guess, in the last like few years is like, it's not so whatever, but it's, um, it does kind of feel like now, we're kind of like peers who can talk about acting from like a with like a level of mutual respect and also like a you know like we don't always have the same taste and we can challenge each other on that and as opposed to the kind of dynamic of like me being the son and her being the mother like it does kind of feel like we can be more like creative colleagues as well when talking about acting and stuff like that so like it is yeah, it, it feels it feels really nice. It had there haven't been um, any hurdles yet with it, but who knows? We'll see. <laughs> I I can't imagine there would be. As again, yeah. she's she's so yeah. lovely that yeah. I imagine those kinds of conversations would be easy. But yeah. I also wonder as well, like from an Australian perspective, we always yeah. have that mindset of oh, don't be an actor because you'll never have work. It's not a career. Yeah. We treat the arts like it's something very disposable. Yeah. Um, but then the people that I talk to who are in the arts, who live a life in the arts, like we know how to have those conversations. Like it's, it's built in us because of the empathy and all this kind of stuff. So it's inherent with being an artist uh, and it's beautiful. Absolutely. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think my mum as well, like what's really nice is like, she, she like really values art. And so like, it's, you know, it, it isn't, it's not like every parent and, and because of that, like, like my my 
my brother's a lawyer and my sister's a doctor. And I feel like my mom is as proud, if not sometimes more proud of me than she is of them, which is like, you know, sucks to be them because they've worked so hard to be a doctor and a lawyer. And and the, the actor son gets the praise, but still, you know, like it's... um. Uh, yeah, you deserve it though. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, being a doctor and a lawyer, that's good. Or yeah, yeah, do yeah. all that kind of stuff. However, yeah. it's yeah. a good transition to talking about London because yes. you're walking on the stages of greats, right? Yeah. And I'm curious if you can talk about that journey and the decision to work in London. How did that start off? It kind of wasn't, there was no master plan. It was very much like me going with the flow of like where life's taking me because basically Pulse got into BFI Flair, which is the London LGBT Film Festival. And they invited me and they said they're going to pay and put me up or just fly me over to go and present the film and do a Q&A and stuff like that. And at the time I was doing this like independent play in Sydney and it was going to clash and I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, and so Stevie was going to go and said, but I think because it was such a personal story, they really wanted me to come with. So I managed to make it work. And so I went over and because of my grandfather, I've had an Irish passport forever. And so I was kind of like, well, you know, this is going to London. I may as well try to see if I can um, get representation over here. Never thinking I would, you know, move or have time over here and stuff like that. And then there was a casting director who I had previously done a tape for because I was doing a worldwide call out for a disabled actor. And he's a wonderful casting director called Daniel Edwards. I'd never met him before, but he really loved my work. And I was like, I'm looking for representation. And I only had four days that I could meet people. And he has set up 14 meetings for me with casting directors and agents in four days and like really championed me. And then I signed with my incredible agents in the UK. And basically halfway through that week, they were like, we think you should come over and spend time here. Like, this is a good time for you to be here. And kind of in a very kismet way, my brother... And my sister-in-law had just had their first baby and they were moving to London for two years. Um, he was like, as part of his law firm, the head offices in London. So they were moving to London for two years. And so they were going to have a spare room and were like, if you do childcare, then you can come stay with us. So I was like, well, every arrow is pointing to come to London. So I did. And then I fell in love with it. And just the opportunities here have just been like, kind of beyond my, honestly, beyond my wildest dreams. Like, it's been really incredible. And not only for stage, but also for screen stuff as well. Like, it's been really, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it was kind of coming because it's like, it felt like when I first came there that, like, it was where Australia will be with disability in 10 years' time. And so it was this kind of thing where I was kind of living in the future. It felt like, like it was like, oh, these things that are such big hurdles in Australia are no longer hurdles. Like I, I'm not having to, you know, bash down doors. People are welcoming me in. And it was, yeah, it was really nice. It's, I mean, the people that you've worked with and the plays that you've done, yeah. it's like, it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah. the seagull, like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I'm sure you probably do this on a daily basis, but do you sit there and pinch yourself and go, is this real? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, totally. It's been again, like beyond my wildest dreams, like I'm, I'm living, I'm living the dream that I had before I became disabled, that I like buried from age 11 until, you know, 23. So like, it's, it's, yeah, I'm living my childhood dream. So it's, it's pretty amazing. 
I'm curious then as well, like because the as I mentioned, Australia's relationship, as you know, with with the arts is yeah. very dismissive. Yes. But England and the UK is they embrace the arts, they love the arts, and I'm curious if you can talk about that dichotomy or the difference between the two as an actor. Yeah, I mean it's kind of extraordinary because also as well, like you know, in Australia we have incredible theatre as well, and I've worked in Australian theatre, but I do feel like the general public aren't really as interested in theatre as they are in London. Like in London, like theatre is seen as like one of the um, the the great jewels of the city. You know, like 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 one of the the you know the um, and and yeah, it's just that there's also as well like there's just so much stuff happening. There's so there's so many projects on stage and on screen that it does feel like it did kind of feel like this whole world opening up. Um, before me and stuff like that. And and what's nice as well is because of this, the other thing as well that is very, I feel like um, UK specific, especially like London specific is like, when you do do a number of, you know, like West End stuff, then the, the screen people look to that for, not only in terms of for actors, but also for writers. And like so much of the best British TV is written by playwrights, do you know what I mean? And like, and, 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 and with the actors, and it feels like a very, like, healthy ecosystem that kind of feeds each other, where, like, everyone kind of does theatre and screen, and and because of that, it just makes it all really rich. I'm curious then as well, I mean, we don't get to see you on stage very often, yeah. Yeah. but there is a National Theatre Live version of The okay. Seagull, and yeah. that in itself is really important. I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, what's that like knowing that that gets to be screened in Australia? Like, it's theatre away from home. It's really nice, especially because, like, you know, my mum is beautiful and often tries to come see my plays, but, like, my extended family, they're not able to. And, like, my... I, I remember as well, like, it was really beautiful. My, my, I'm very close to my immediate family, even though we're kind of all over the place. But he now lives... He, after London, he moved back to Perth and lives in the house across the road from my parents. Um, and he... He, he rarely gets to see my stage work, if ever. And, you know, now he has three kids and is very settled. And, and he went to see the National Theatre Live. And, and he called me afterwards and he was like, he's not a very emotional guy. He was crying. And, like, it was just really, um, I don't know, it was really nice to, to see the work have that reach. And that is, like, what's so beautiful about theatre is it, like, is the kind of ephemeral nature of it and that it is, like, so present tense. But also... Sometimes what's so great about screen stuff is the reach it has and like how, how not only will it, you know, reach through time, but also just reach through, you know, region and can be seen by so many people. And so it was just, yeah, it's really nice that that happened. Yeah. I, I mean, as somebody like the Seagull is one of my favorite plays. So yeah. getting to see it, I was just like, oh yeah, cool. And I didn't know you were in it. And then yeah, I watched amazing. it, I'm like, oh, this is even beautiful because <laughs> it's like, it's like this marriage of yeah, yeah stuff. So yeah, it's wonderful to see. I like that. Um, hopefully you'll get to see more of your work on the stage that totally. way because uh, I would have loved to have seen Teenage Dick. Like that sounds like it would have been exciting. Yeah. What was it like working on that particular production? It was a dream. It was like, that was my first, you know, introduction to London and my first job in London. And it was, that was honestly one of those dream, dream jobs. Like a number of people on that job and now my closest friends over here. And it was just a joy. It, was, it felt like doing something that was both like really fun and entertaining, but also 
for me had like such personal purpose and was saying something that I felt was really important um, for, you know, audiences to hear. And so it just felt, it was kind of just the best of all worlds. It was like a dream. Yeah. You, now, apologies, I should have yeah. checked this beforehand, but you got yeah. nominated for that as well for yeah. an award. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I um, won the stage debut awards at, um, in, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was bad. It was great. It was it that really was my, I mean, like my career in in the UK was because of that first job, um, and so it really it opened all the doors. It, I got the seagull because of that. I got my audition for the seagull because they saw that, and then screen work I've done since has like there, there's a um, TV thing that I've done that I found out like we I filmed it in 2022. And I found out that they'd actually written a role for me because they saw me in it at the end of 2019. And so like, it was this kind of like long, yeah. And so like, it really did, it's the reason why I have a career in the UK as well as in Australia. I'm curious then if you can talk about, did you feel any pressure at all to make a mark in those first performances? Like obviously your debut stuff, you're going to feel pressure regardless, but I imagine being disabled might come with that extra responsibility or that feeling like I need to do this, not just for myself, but for everybody else. Absolutely. Cause also as well, like I feel like where disabled actors are so rarely given the opportunities and you know, if they are, it's usually not very meaty, interesting opportunities. And I, as an complete unknown in the UK was given a lead role at the Domino warehouse and it kind of did feel like, whether whether warranted or not, I, I think I do feel the thing of like, if I if I do this really well, it will encourage other theatres and other, you know, filmmakers to cast stable people. And if I bomb this, it could discourage them and say, well, see, there aren't um, the talented disabled actors out there or whatever, which is a ridiculous argument in itself. But like, but I do feel that pressure on myself. And also it being my first thing in the UK. I remember before I went on stage every day, because I felt such pressure for myself to do well. And I feel like creatively, there's nothing that like shuts you down more than like trying to do something well. And so like, I literally would say to like my other actors before I go on, because I was the first person on, I'd be like, I'm just going to do the damn thing. Like, I'm not going to do it good or bad. I'm just going to do it. And then in doing that, it kind of just freed me up to just do it and not, yeah. not, not try to do it well, which just gets you in your head and makes you, you know, yeah, just do the damn thing. <laughs> I'm curious then if we can get deep for a moment. Yeah. How do you deal with those those moments where you get in your head, where you do yeah. suddenly find yourself, you know, trapped in that, I can't do this. Yeah. Am I the right person? How do you yeah. feel with like that? How do you deal with it? I, I feel like the biggest moments of those for me, at least in on the theatre, has been in the rehearsal process. Like, I feel like there's, I guess with crafting anything or creating anything, there's always the kind of like creative process where there's the po po point where you're like, all is lost. I can't do this. This is shit. I don't know if I can say shit. Can I say shit? Um, you can, of course you can say <laughs> okay, shit. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, and, but in those moments as well, like, I, I mean, something that has come up so much, and I remember the first time I did it like a dance theater show when I was still editing Pulse, and I felt very out of my depth, and um, I was really struggling, and I would literally say to myself, was like, I'm not failing, I'm growing. I'm not failing, I'm growing. I'm not failing, I'm growing. Because it is so easy just to get in the mindset of like, because you're not able to do it yet and this is so hard that this means it's like 
a failure, but usually now I've learned since as well as like when I'm in that place is if I push through, it's usually when I'm struggling the most means that the biggest breakthrough is about to come. If that makes sense. If I just stick with it. And if I just like check out, then that's, that's when it will just kind of stay in the, in the mud. And so like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of how I feel. It's they're so fascinating. Like it's so, I relate to that quite a lot, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting. And, and apologies for sounding so like self-conceited for a moment. Right. But way back when, when Pulse first came out, I'm like, yeah. oh, I really want to interview Daniel. Like he's yeah. somebody who I, I, you've always been a bucket list person. I'm like, I really oh. desperately want to interview Daniel. And then I'm like, at that time I was starting interviewing and I re-listened to some of my interviews and I'm like, I'm glad I didn't interview Daniel then because... You know, I, I respect everybody that I interview, but I, like, I really want to do a good interview with you. And I hope I am doing a good interview. You're doing a wonderful like... interview. <laughs> Thank you. Really? <laughs> but at the time, I was like, I know I'm just going to ask the wrong questions. I'm yeah, like, really. in a few years' time, I'll be able to ask you the right questions and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, in the room where he waits, we'll, we'll get on to that eventually because oh, yeah. that's why we're here. But yes. I'm like, and then I've been seeing you just grow and grow and grow and it's the same kind of thing at that mindset of no 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 like every step every interview that i do is you know moving towards talking with somebody who i really want to be able to shine a spotlight on and go look at the great work this person's doing and then yeah and that's what i've i've always enjoyed being able to see what you do from afar and not just because you're a perth boy like i think that's probably got something to do with it too but it's like what you do is great. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Yeah. Like genuinely. And this, I'm having a great time. So you're doing a wonderful yeah. job. So thank you. So much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I enjoy doing the interviews. It's, it's yeah. a selfish thing. I, it, you know, get to talk to people like yourself, but I find that, um, certainly in Australia, we don't get to shine a spotlight on people who deserve to have a spotlight shine, shine on through interviews and that's part of what i've always wanted to do yeah. uh and that's why you know getting to do something like in the room where he waits is yeah, always yeah. really nice yeah but before we get to that yes i do want to talk about sissy right? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Right, okay which is just phenomenal like i love yeah. that film a, a lot. and one of the key reasons and i guess spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen sissy sissy but one of the key reasons why i love it so much is you have an iconic death scene in it Yes. Right? And I'm curious if you can talk about that and what it was like to work on Sissy and yeah. knowing that that was what you were going to go through. So, oh, I, I, so basically, so Hannah Barlow, um, Hannah Barlow and Kane Centers are the co-writers, co-directors. I've been friends with Hannah Barlow for, I mean, I'm now 35. I've been friends with her since I was 22 or something. So we've been friends forever, like since she just got out of NIDA. And like, we always wanted to work together and they wrote that role for with me in mind. And I, in kind of the most amazing way, they told me about the idea like four, maybe five years before we even filmed it. So it was kind of that thing. And also like also spoke to me about it because also like I, I was very, I kind of like in, in it, the, the, the concept of the character was always their idea, but I was very like encouraging of um, kind of breaking the stereotype of, especially for me at that time of, the meek sweet disabled character and to have an act like a really powerful antagonistic disabled character who is unapologetic and is you know and is all those things and so i, I feel like I, I definitely encourage them to embrace that and and 
yeah, so it was this kind of amazing thing that, you know, with so many like filmmaker friends, you have ideas and then they never come to fruition. And even this, like it came, we shot it in December, 2020. It was like, it, but like we only found it out, like I felt like we only found we we're going to shoot it like five weeks before we started. Like it was like, it was so quick that it was like, now we're suddenly doing it. I was like, oh great. Like, but it was really, and I just as well, like I, because I knew Hannah first as an actor and not only she's an amazing actor, but also seeing her, not only her creative directing ability, but also like her leadership on that film, I just found so inspiring. And I just like, I would do anything for her. And I feel like she ha- she's going to have and is having like a, you know, a long, fruitful career because she's just phenomenal. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just like you, you know, they received a huge amount of attention at the yeah. actors, and yeah, yeah. which is just like Australia is not known for celebrating or championing horror, and it's Absolutely. wonderful to see yeah. a film like Sissy get a best film, best yeah. director, best acting. Yeah. All up. What did that mean for you as being part of that filming, seeing it get that kind of recognition? It was amazing. I think for me as well, like so much of that film for me, like it feels. I was most happy that Hannah got that recognition, like, because so much of it feels like, you know, um, so much of the experience and so much of, like, feels like a, a recognition of her talent and and a cementing of her ability to be a director, especially as a female director and stuff like that, of, like, a, the acknowledgement of that. And it was really kind of beautiful as well because it um, screened at a horror film festival in London that was on it. They had an afternoon screening in Leicester Square. And I was doing the seagull at the time, like on the other side of Leicester Square. So like five steps away. So I was able to go do the Q and A with them at the screening and do like the the carpet and stuff and then go and do the seagull, which you could not get two more polar opposite um, um, (laughs) projects. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. But it was kind of, yeah, it was really, it was really beautiful. You're talking about wanting to, kind of subvert subvert what kind of character Jamie was as well. He's also quite a catty gay character. And I'm curious if that was equally important for you to be that kind of bitchy, catty kind of guy. Because he doesn't seem like the sort of person that you are. No, 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 no. So very different. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like at the time, I mean, in terms of, I don't feel like I, it was, like it was subverting expectations for a disabled character, not subverting expectations for a gay male character. But I also, just like as a performer, I never had the opportunity at that time to do that stuff. Like I kind of had a a year and a half. It kind of culminated with Teenage Dick of when I first started acting, I was being cast in a lot of roles that were like the meek, the abused, the bullied, the super vulnerable. And like, not that there's anything wrong with those roles and I love doing them, but I, I could easily see myself and what I was being asked to do was kind of like um, perpetuating the tiny Tim trope of like, just like very disadvantaged and, and abused, but also very positive and open-hearted and will teach the abled lead about the importance of appreciating what you have in life because look how tragic this character's life is, you know, like, and I didn't want to do that. And I think after doing that for so long, I like was ready to like within a space of time I did, um, like my villain era was like very, um, I did Sissy, I played Roger in The Lord of the Flies at Sydney Theatre Company where I was originally considered for Simon or Piggy who were one of the two who were um, 
bullied and murdered and I championed myself to make play this most cruel psychopathic one. And then I ended that year doing Teenage Dick, which was Richard the Third, who is ruthless and and also in a in a really fun way, he uses his well, at least in our production and the way that I kind of saw him, is like uses um the preconceived ideas of a physically disabled person to manipulate people into not suspecting him by by playing the meek and vulnerable and then behind closed doors being maniacal and vicious and and so yeah there was something about that that was really fun to do i mean again i i, I love cc i think it's you know such a genre treat and yes and, and yeah like the the gore and the violence in it is just so exciting and inventive it's delightful totally. to see so congratulations i hope the you know uh, like with uh stevie i hope that the career yeah. with hannah and kane continues hopefully you get to work again it'll be good love um but let's talk about in the room where he waits which yeah. feels like the perfect marriage between the two like stage yeah. and screen yeah and it's like how did you come to this story that was like such a, a real big kismet destined type thing um whether you believe in it or not, it was it was either like supreme coincidence or, or kismet. And I um basically when COVID hit, the I was on my fifth preview of doing the Seagull in the West End. We were three nights away from press night, which was like the opening night, and we got shut down. But what was first meant to be three weeks and six weeks, then three months, and I came back to Australia because it was looking like who knows when it's going to come back. And so like my experience was so, and this was like my biggest, I, I'd done Teenage Dick, but like playing the, you know, concerts in the Seagull with Amelia Park in the West End was like much bigger and and was like my, and, and it was that thing where it was like, it was taken away and we never thought it would come back. And in, and even actually when we filmed In the Room Where He Waits, I still didn't think it was gonna come back. And it was only, it was, it was 805 days between the seagull shutting down and us starting rehearsals again. So like it, it wasn't a quick remount and it wasn't a certain remount. And so um, it was this thing where I, I was back in Sydney and we were like in, it was like the States were in lockdown and like it was all, you know, it was, it was a very difficult COVID time. And I think on Facebook, I saw that Tim, I had met Tim at Sydney Film Festival when Paul screened at Sydney Film Festival and he came to the screening and we chatted afterwards and he was so lovely and generous and then we kind of just kept in touch, like through social media or messages or whatever. Um, but we didn't really know each other that well. And then he was doing this film and I messaged him and I was just like, if there's any way I can audition for this, like this. And, and he sent me the script and I read the script and it was like reading my life at that moment or like what I'd just been through. And I was like, well, this is so wild. This is like, this is, this is, yeah, it was really wild. And then we had a, like the next morning we had like a Zoom meeting audition. And by that afternoon, he offered it to me. And then it all happened so quickly. Then like, you know, a few weeks later I had to do, um, cause at that point you can, you can go from, we shot in Brisbane, you can go to Sydney to Queensland. You can go, you can cross the Queensland border if you had been, in Sydney in the past two weeks. So I had to do two weeks in a roadside motel in Ballina, right near the Queensland border, where I just kind of like crazily prepared for two weeks, like a beautiful minding in my um, in my motel room but before I could cross the border into Queensland and go to Brisbane and then shoot this film. That was like, honestly, 
it was one of the most um, meaningful creative experiences in my whole life. And I think as well, like I, I think I, mean, I think I was aware of it at the time, but even in hindsight, like I think like a lot of people went through a hard time during COVID and it wasn't like a, um, you know, like it was hard having everything in the world fall apart. And, and also for me as well, like feeling like this career I'd worked so hard for just being taken from me and like, um, which obviously there was much worse things that people went through, but that was my specific experience. And there was something really surprisingly healing about the whole experience of making in the room where he waits. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful experience. I mean, it's a beautiful film. Like, obviously the focus is on you. It's, it's got to be hard, but it's also on loneliness. Yeah. And yeah. that to me, it's a story about the evolution of loneliness because you've got the queer identity, you've got familial loneliness, you have physical loneliness yeah, and then yeah. this new sense of loneliness, which is yeah. COVID loneliness and that, that trapped in a hotel for two weeks kind of sense. And of course here in Perth, we didn't have that. So our sense of loneliness is statewide because yeah. you know, we yeah. had a completely different feeling than Melbourne and Victoria and all these yeah. other places. But I'm curious if you can talk about what it meant to explore loneliness on screen in this particular way. It was it was amazing. It was like, I think also because at that time I was so deeply lonely. Like, and so like, it was really, it wasn't a, a reach for me to feel those things. And also there was something really, obviously like it's specific to the time in which we made it, but then there was also something in my experience of it that also felt like it was this kind of like, it was living in this like unsettling liminal space that almost felt like living in my subconscious or an unconscious type thing. Like it felt very, it felt, both like tangibly specific and then also kind of more mysterious and yeah the experience of it was amazing and also as well like I had to go to dark places with it but I I really felt so safe on that set and so much of that is due to Tim and then also we like our amazing cinematographer Ben Cockgrove and like it was a very it was a very vulnerable intimate um, experience to do, but I felt very held and, and it was also a very, possibly more than I've ever had a very like queer, queer heavy creatives and crew. And so because of that, it didn't feel like, um, it felt like this, the, the specificity of the queer lonely, queer loneliness and that queer experience felt very much shared between all of us or through between most of us. And, and, and so I felt very, um, I don't know, held and in a strange way, not alone in exploring the loneliness. And that's the thing is that I think that we're now getting to see gratefully on screen that representation of queer loneliness in a way that hasn't truly been explored before, because it's often, from my perspective, at least it's often been presented from a straight cisgender perspective. Totally. And totally. queer loneliness is a very unique thing to feel like it's hard to go through. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing it on screen in a way that feels like a lot of people can relate to it. And it's a lot like, I, I feel like this is a perfect companion to all of us strangers. Like, yeah. you know, if you want to have a really sad night, you yes. can watch both of these together. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't even think of that connection, but of course it is. Yeah. 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 No. But it's important to have that kind of stuff. And again, like, as I was saying earlier, queer stories in Australia are finally kind of getting 
their, their moment in the spotlight and we're yeah. getting to see it through support like festivals like Queer Screen. And I'm curious yeah. if you can talk about how important it is to have a festival like that too. I mean, Queer Screen, not only for this film, but for like mine, and I, I think Tim's as well, the entire career, like my short films before I even made polls, you know, went to Sydney Mardi Gras Film Festival and was supported by Queer Screen. Like I had a short film in the My Queer Career. Like they, like queer cinema in Australia and especially Sydney's, like, I feel like would not be what it is if not for Queer Screen. And, like, the fact that, I mean, this film also received the Queer Screen Completion Fund to help it um, finish because we did it on a shoestring. And, like, and so the, I don't know, I'm just really appreciative to them and just feel like they're such an important, vital organisation that, like, you know, I hope just flourishes and continues for many, many years to come. Are there any emerging or established queer directors in Australia that you'd like to work with? I would love to work with Alistair Baldwin. Um, he's obviously queer and disabled and a Perth boy. Um, and but he, he's he, ticking, ticking three ticking boxes. All there, boxes yeah. um, but it's also he. So he's in Erotic Stories, the um, SDS um, drama. He wrote um, Bound, which my mentee and friend Joel Largo played the lead in. And I just, I just found that short film episode like so meaningful because it really was like, like that representation that I felt like I didn't have, which was the reason to making polls, like felt fulfilled also by um, Alistair's story in, in a way that like his voice is much funnier than my authorial voice and he has such a wit about him. But also, it's like there's like, a, like a, a, an emotional honesty and truth, and I just think he's wonderful, and I really hope, you know, selfishly for me, so I can work with him, but also just like for you know, disabled cinema in this country, I hope his career just grows and grows, and he's given more and more opportunities because I feel like he's a really important voice for the culture. Yeah, I agree, and I mean. Like, as you're saying, we feel like we're 10 years behind, but we are getting there. And absolutely. So, absolutely. And also, and also I mean, it was kind of beautiful as well, because Joel, who, again, I started mentoring in 2020 through Midsummer Festival, and now we're friends. And that was his, like, screen debut on the same way Pulse was. And he was just nominated for Best Lead Actor in TV Drama at the Actor Awards. And so it's like, it is happening. Like, there, there is, there are the... Um, the changes and we are getting opportunities and but it is also that thing where i feel like it's so vital that i don't think it's a surprise that that you know both for joel and for i the the opportunities were also written by disabled writers like it was like i feel like the more it's it's not enough just to support disabled actors it's also important to support disabled directors and writers and creators for more things to be able to tell those stories otherwise it can't help but always be through enabled gaze well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, as you were saying earlier about uh, going across and doing stuff at, um, you know, the different schools over East, basically, yeah. and they're not providing spaces for disabled actors because yeah. it's too exhausting. And it's yeah. like, well, life is exhausting, yes, but it's also, you know, like, yeah. let let disabled actors be part of things and Truly. magic happens. Truly, yeah. yeah. One of the key things is celebrating Australian stories as well. And yeah. that's kind of my focus of what yeah. I like to do. And I'm curious for you, if you can talk about what it means to be an Australian actor out there on the stage and 
as kind of like a sub question, you don't have to answer this right away, but do people come to you as like a mentor as well? Like you were talking about being a mentor um, because you've made it in London? Yeah. So, I mean, the Australian, being Australian, I, I, similar to you, I'm really, it's really important to me. Like it's, it's, I, I mean, something that was really special to me is like doing the seagull was Jamie Lloyd, the director, wanted us to all use our own voices. And there was something I found powerful not only as a disabled actor, but as an Australian actor in a classical play in the West End, playing a lead role and speaking Chekhov in my accent. Like, it felt really important. And, like, this next play I'm about to do is also a classical text that's translated, and I'm also going to be speaking my own voice as well. And, like, that feels vital and, and important. And, like, I also, like, um, yeah, there's something, I, something that I appreciate in the UK and it's not for everything, but because there are so many accents, so many jobs I've done, like a lot of screen jobs I've done, even though I can do an English accent, I've specifically asked for my own voice because I want it to be more inclusive in terms of, and like of who lives in the UK, who lives in the world, who like, you know, and, and there is something about that that I feel like is important and vital and, and yeah. And also as well, like with the, I actually, I have like six disabled actors who I mentor and or some some who are now, who are so successful that they're just my friends and it would be ridiculous oh, if we like mentor them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, but 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 it, 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 it was never like something I sought out and just something that always kind of just came to me, like people asking or people knowing someone and just connecting me. And I was always really happy to do it because when I started, when I decided after shooting polls that I wanted to pursue a career in acting. I didn't have anyone to look to. I didn't have a roadmap. I didn't, like every experience I had was like, like I felt a bit like a guinea pig, like learning on the job trial and error of like, how do I navigate this? And there are things that are very specific to being a disabled actor while working, while navigating industry, while like, you know, everything. And so to be able to be someone to not like tell them what to do, but to just basically talk with them and hear their concerns and, I mean, the the bulk of my mentoring is just, like, talking about it. And, like, a lot of the time is also just, like, being a space for them to rant about how fucking hard it is to be a disabled actor in this industry and in this world. And, like, and and so, yeah, so it's really... And and as a <laughs> as a proud mentor, I was really happy last year because not only did Joel get erotic stories and now has the actor nomination... But another incredible actor, William Reese, who I mentor, um, played the lead role in Alistair Baldwin's play at the Mulhouse Theatre. Um, and which, again, these opportunities for disabled actors are, are coming from a disabled writer. And so that's why it's so important to also focus on the industry, focusing on supporting disabled writers and directors and not just actors. Otherwise, there won't be the opportunities. And, and yeah, so, like, that was... Um, yeah, really exciting for me. And it's just really meaningful because like, I think as well, it can feel lonely. And especially like my first ever mentee was Bridie McKim, who's known from the Heights and who's the first disabled actor with, with a physical mobility disability to graduate from NIDA, first disabled lead of a ongoing television series, like broke all these barriers. And like, it's so, our friendship's so meaningful to me because it is like, um, 
like most of our time, most of the time when we catch up, it is us just like having the space to freely rant without need for translation or need to um, censor in any way and just like, you know, be that ear and that space, which I think is like so important in this industry because disabled acts in this industry, we're all trying to do a very hard thing that only until very recently wasn't possible. And so like, you know, it's the more that we have that community, the the better it is. But I'm curious if you can talk about disability and, you know, representation of different cultures and things like that. Yeah, yeah. These are all very sexy things that, that people who are outside of those communities are really like, it's the hot thing nowadays. We must have a disabled person. It must be yeah, this, yeah, yeah. must be that kind of stuff. And representation is really important, but I'm curious yeah. if you can talk about how the complexity of trying to maintain your identity while not letting other people monopolize it for their own gain. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, it's an endless negotiation and an endless, it is, yeah. <laughs> it's a, I mean, the thing is like, I'm also of the mind that like, you know, if people are wanting to cast disabled actors to look good, great, then we're getting our foot on the door and I'll take it. And, you know, like at the end of the day, the work is the thing that will stand. And if I do good work, then, that is what can and also we've been blocked from so many doors for being disabled if we're being invited now because we are disabled which also happens much less than anyone even thinks then i'm going to take that you know what i mean like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna um, think but also i i was very aware both in australia and the uk like after my first um jobs in australia and the uk all of my first jobs were about disability and my character was very specifically it was about his disabled experience and i it felt very important um to me to tell those stories and still feels important to me because those stories haven't been told with disabled people and so have been told inauthentically and has been you know misrepresented and or they just hasn't had any other representation and and that feels really damaging so that feels really important but i was also very aware early on that i could easily get um just relegated to always just being called upon to play a role if it happens to be disabled. And that one isn't very interesting to me as an artist and two doesn't feel sustainable as a career. And so both in Australia and the UK, like I specifically, like since Teenage Dick, which I did in um, December, 2019, every role that I've done since then on stage and screen in the UK and Australia, unless the role was written for me, hasn't been written as disabled. And so like, I haven't, because I, I think at the beginning of my career, I used to joke, it's like, I'm sick of crying about disability. I feel like every job I was doing, it was just like, oh, and like, you know, there, there are things to cry about disability, but there are a lot of things in the world to cry about. And it's not just disability. And so that that's felt really meaningful and important to me and feels like, you know, I'm getting these jobs because not because I'm disabled and they need, need someone who has disability, but because of my work and my skill and that they're, and that also as well, like it means that by me playing them, those characters become disabled in this production. And it that to me feels like meaningful representation in the sense of how incidental the disability is. And in the room where he waits is the perfect example. And like I I when this came along, I was like, this is perfect for me, but he's not written as disabled. And will they, you know, a few years prior, like maybe they would have been like, I mean, I think so wonderful, I don't think he would have, but like, like other filmmakers would go, oh, we don't, that's confusing for the story, he can't be, I mean, oh my God, this is so 
tangential, but when we were making polls, when I was writing it, feedback from people was the character can't be both gay and disabled. That's too many things. And I'm like, but I am gay and disabled. Like, like that's, am I too many things? Like, that's just my lived experience. And there's too many things for an audience to, to conceptualize. And I'm like, well, audiences need to get better. Like, and so I was just really appreciative that um, Tim cast me and that again, in, in the room where he waits, there is no denying that my character is disabled and it is part of his experience. And yet it is not what the story is about. And it's, it's neither highlighted nor hidden. And it's just, it's just incidental in a way that feels, especially for queer storytelling, feels like really special and important and rare. Exactly. And that was what was so comforting about it. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, cool. This is, it, it, again, it just felt like, oh, this is an extension of Daniel. Like this, yeah. this feels like a version of your own life. And then yeah, and I, I almost expected because part of me was a little bit like, I know you haven't written in a while. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I promise you, I don't follow you that closely. No, 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 like, no. I know you haven't written in a while, but I'm like, I expected at the end to be like, you know, story by, but no. And that's how impressive it is because it does feel like something that yeah. you would write because it's yeah. so organic. But then on yeah. the same hand, it's like, it's comforting to know that you didn't write it, which yeah. I know doesn't sound like a compliment, but I hope no, it, no, no, it no. is. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, but, but also like when I, because also like I didn't write a word of this. This is all Tim and Dimple and Paradox's creation. And what what was, I had the same experience reading it. I was like, this is like, written for me this is like yeah like it, it it that was what was exciting to me as well like i felt so aligned with um tim and what he was trying to explore and and um yeah the story yeah look it's beautiful film um Thanks. your work is beautiful and wonderful uh, getting to talk to you has been a real treat i, I okay. really appreciate it daniel thank okay. you so much um yeah i feel like i could talk to you forever about Likewise. what you're doing but I'm going to meet you again in the future when you've, you. you've done even more films in stage. Please push to bring a performance on stage here in Perth one day. <laughs> no, I would love to. I would love to. I would like genuinely love to. There was talk at one point of Teenage Dick, but then that didn't happen. But, you know, yeah, yeah one day. His Madge is sitting there. At yes. Pledge Theatre, would you? Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. have a preference? Is there like a theatre in Perth that you... I, I do like that he's Ledger is. I, yeah, I do like the Ledger Theatre. I feel like it's that bad to, to not say his match, but um, yeah. Not at all. No, okay. no, no. His match is so big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there we go. One day we'll get you there. Um, thank but you, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Curb Podcast. Once again, to help keep The Curb independent, please visit patreon.com forward slash thecurbau to show your support from as little as $1 a month. And if you like what we do, head over as well to thecurb.com.au to listen to other interviews, to read reviews, and check out all the other things going on there. Thanks all. We'll see you on the next one.